On January 8, 1956, five missionaries, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Jim Elliott were killed by the Aka Indians they had gone to Ecuador to reach with the gospel. It wasn't something totally unexpected. The Akas were an isolated, unconquered, semi-nomadic tribe of jungle Indians. Pedro Suarez, a Jesuit priest, had entered Aka territory in 1667, but was later found murdered by Indian spears. For 200 years after that, the Akas had been left alone. With the discovery of rubber, however, other white men had come. But as the rubber hunters roamed the jungles, they plundered and burned Indian homes, raped, tortured, and enslaved the Akas they encountered. The missionaries were risking their lives, and they knew it. As a senior at Wheaton College, Jim Elliott had written these words in his diary. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Jim knew the Lord had called him to serve on the mission field. And as his widow Elizabeth Elliot wrote in Through Gates of Splendor, Toward the end of the summer of 1950, Jim's general direction became specific. He met a former missionary from Ecuador who told him of the needs in that field and mentioned the great challenge of the dread Aucas. This was the climax to several years of seeking direction from God. Jim devoted 10 days largely to prayer to make sure that this was indeed what God intended for him. He was given new assurance and wrote to his parents of his intention to go to Ecuador. Jim prayed for others who might share his vision and his call to go to Ecuador. In 1951, Pete Fleming, a friend of Jim's, wrote to a missionary from Ecuador who had been addressing Christian groups in the States. Since your visit, I have been very much in prayer about going to Ecuador. In fact, I have never prayed so much before the Lord about anything. Jim and I have exchanged several letters in which I told him of the increased desire to go forth and of the scriptures which God seemingly had brought to mind to confirm it. My thinking, both in and outside of the scriptures, was directed toward the stringency of Christ's word to his disciples when he sent them forth, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. He that taketh not up his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. 
He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he who loseth his life for my sake shall find it. It is seen that the severe requirements of a difficult field like Ecuador are matched on a spiritual level by the severe requirements placed on real disciples. Ecuador, as it seems, is a God-given opportunity to place God's principles and promises to the extreme test. All five missionaries passed the test. They knew what it meant to follow Jesus. They had seen him and were forever changed by their encounter with the Son of God. And as Jim Elliott had said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some, however, may express a desire to see Jesus without realizing what it may cost them. And that may have been true of the Greeks who approached Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. In the 19th verse, John recorded the Pharisees as saying, The world has gone after him. In verse 20, he shows how that statement was coming true. Just as Gentile wise men came looking for Jesus at his birth, Greeks came looking for him just before his death. Who these Greeks were, we can only guess. Whether they were travelers from Greece or merely Gentiles of Greek ancestry, perhaps living in one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, we don't know. But we do know that they were among those going up to worship at the feast. Apparently, they were God-fearers. Gentiles who had accepted the truth of one God from the Jews and had come to worship in the temple. Now, if they hadn't become full proselytes to Judaism, they could get no further than the court of the Gentiles, but that was far enough to worship. And that was where Jesus had just driven out the money changers and the religious hucksters. Perhaps they had been there. Or maybe they'd only heard of Jesus. Either way, they wanted to see Jesus. And by see, John indicates they wanted to do more than just lay eyes on Jesus. Something they may have already done. Now it appears they wanted an interview. They wanted to meet Jesus, and we can only surmise why they wanted to see him. Maybe they were just curious and wanted to meet a celebrity. Maybe they wanted to ask a a great teacher of religious truths a question. Maybe they were coming in need of healing. Or perhaps 
They came to offer Jesus an alternative to ministering to Jews. You know, they could no doubt sense the hostility that was building, perhaps if they had witnessed the cleansing of the temple. Perhaps they wanted to invite Jesus to return with them to Gentile lands. Or they may have come because they wanted to be part of his kingdom. Maybe they believed he was the Messiah they had heard the Jews talking about. Whatever the case, they came, but not directly to Jesus. They came to Philip, one of the apostles who had a Greek name, and told him they wanted to see Jesus. Apparently, they were afraid to approach Jesus directly, or maybe they just couldn't get to him. So they went to Philip with the request, and Philip went to Andrew. Apparently, Philip didn't know what to do. You know, Jesus had told his apostles that they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. But he always seemed to have time for the Gentiles who came to him. So Philip wasn't sure what to do. So he went to Andrew, who also had a Greek name. And together they went to Jesus and told him of this request. Whether Jesus actually granted a personal interview or not, we're not told. But Jesus did use the request as an opportunity to make a public announcement that would affect Jews and Gentiles alike. An announcement that would make it clear where he was going and what it would mean for those who really want to see Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now the crowd was probably thrilled when Jesus said the hour had come. For him to be glorified. To them it meant the hour had come for Jesus to declare himself as king of the Jews and to lead them in conquest. It meant it was time to throw off the chains of Roman domination and to watch them grovel at the feet of a Jewish king. That was their idea of glory. You know, they assumed their hosannas were going to be heeded. Jesus was going to save them, lead them in victory. Over the Romans, you can almost see them running to beat their plowshares into swords. They were ready for their Messiah to be glorified. But that wasn't the path to glory Jesus had chosen. Instead of fomenting revolt, he spoke of the need for a grain of wheat to die before it could bear fruit. I'm sure that made no sense to them. You know, why the horticultural lesson? True, a grain of wheat had to die before it could produce fruit, but what did that have to do with him? You know, what was he saying? They didn't, they didn't understand, at least not until long after he had died. But Jesus was telling them that the hour had come for his death. The Son of Man would be glorified by going to a cross. He would be glorified by dying and then rising again. 
Only then would the kingdom of God become a reality. Only then would Greeks really be able to see Jesus. You know, if he fulfilled the nationalistic dream of the Jews and established an earthly kingdom, the Gentiles would have been left out. But he came to be the savior of the world, to establish a spiritual kingdom for all who would believe in him. And that would require his death. He would have to die to become the Messiah for Jews and Gentiles alike. The hour of his death was at hand. And he was ready to be glorified by offering himself. He was willing to die to bear spiritual fruit. Did those who wanted to see him understand that? And were they willing to follow him to a cross? He continued. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What did he mean when he said, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. Was he saying we must despise life in this world? If we are to find eternal life, was he saying it's wrong to enjoy life? Well, some would say yes, that Christians should be miserable in this life. If you know me, you know I disagree. I don't hate life. I love life. I praise and thank God for the life he has given me here and for the life that's promised to me in the hereafter. So am I in trouble? I think not. We've got to understand what Jesus meant when he said we must hate life in this world. He said a similar thing about hating our loved ones in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does that mean we're to hate our families? That a good Christian father is to be hateful to his children? Of course not. Maybe we'll understand it better if we read a parallel passage in Matthew. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is using the word hatred in a comparative sense. Our love for the eternal should make our love for this life appear as hatred. Besides, 
If this is the life we treasure above all else, we lose. This life is going to slip through our fingers. And if this is all we have, we'll end up with nothing. But if eternal life is our highest priority, our first love, and we're willing to give up this life to relinquish our claims on this life, we open the doors to eternal life. In fact, We must give up our life to save it. Jesus made that very clear in Mark 8, 34 through 36. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Obviously, nothing. We must give up our life for his sake to save it. We must die like a grain of wheat before we can bear eternal fruit. We must be willing to do what Jesus did. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. And where is that? Obviously, it's a place of glory. But in order to arrive there, Jesus first had to go to a cross. The same is true of us. If we would see Jesus, we must follow him to a cross. Jesus said, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And Paul made it clear that in baptism, we crucify our old self and bury it in a watery grave. It's easy to see that self is seldom Buried today. In fact, as Carl Truman has noted, we live in a strange new world due to the rise and triumph of the modern self. And the modern self goes even beyond the old self. The modern self makes personal pleasure its highest good and demands that everyone celebrate it. As such, followers of Christ, on the other hand, are called to nail self to a cross and bury it in a tomb of self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. And that's what's required of us if we would see him. I doubt that's what the Greeks expected to hear. But Keith Green understood it. In 1975, at the age of 21, Keith Green became a Christian. He was already a successful songwriter and musician who had traveled down a road of drugs, Eastern mysticism, and free love. 
But when he saw Jesus for who he really was, he never looked back. He quickly became the most popular Christian artist alive with top-selling albums and concerts that filled stadiums. Marilyn and I will never forget the concert we attended in St. Louis. Keith was not content, however, to simply be a successful Christian artist. He became a prophet to his generation, calling young and old alike to repentance and to radical commitment to Jesus. However, on July 28, 1982, Keith Green was killed while flying over the Texas ranch that had become the headquarters of his last day's ministry. With him in the plane when it went down was the pilot who had been on his way to the East Coast to establish a church and his wife and six children. Also in the plane were two of Keith and Melody's children, three-year-old Josiah and two-year-old Bethany. It was a tragedy that stunned the Christian community. And it, it affected me more than any death I had ever experienced. It just did not make sense, at least to most of us. Two days after his death, however, Melody wrote, As I sat there thinking, praying, and crying, a phrase came into my mind out of nowhere, a grain of wheat. I thought, isn't there something in the Bible about a grain of wheat? I looked it up. It was John 12, 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I caught my breath as I read it. It was the first time I'd ever received a scripture in that way, and it was so specific. Was this the Lord speaking his heart to me regarding Keith's death? One of the things I was troubled about was the loss of Keith's ministry to the world. Was this God giving me a promise? Could he redeem even this disaster? The verse seemed to be a promise. But how on earth could it be fulfilled? Well, it was. In the years following his death, thousands more were reached through the continuing ministry of Keith's music and Melody's work and testimony. In fact, a song Melody wrote is in our hymnal, and we're going to sing it before communion today. Now, like Jim Elliott, Keith wanted more than anything else to be used by God. He understood what it meant to follow Jesus and was willing to do so. During a weekend retreat, when his son was only seven months old, Keith had struggled with his willingness to surrender everything to the Lord. And Melody wrote, What God really seemed to be after on this weekend was more of Keith himself. 
Was he willing to lay down everything for the Lord, including me? Including Josiah? What Keith had read several months ago about Reese Howells giving up his own son came back to him. Keith had to struggle with being willing not only to lay down his own life for the gospel, but also laying down his love for me and Josiah. Another quote came to him. The man whose little sermon is repent sets himself against his age. There is but one end for such a man off with his head. You'd better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. Keith's retreat encompassed the day of Josiah's seven-month birthday. Keith wept for a long time about the question of his willingness to let the Lord have full rights to Josiah no matter what. He finally came to the place of willingness. He wrote a song on his guitar in the form of a prayer, weeping the whole time. The song lyrics were written in Keith's journal, but he didn't want me to read them. He took his journal back and opened it to the right page, then grabbed his guitar and sat cross-legged on the floor in front of me. He wept again as he sang. Well, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And I ask no man on earth to fill my need. Like the sparrow of the bar, I am enveloped in his love.
I pledge my son, I pledge my wife, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are we really willing to surrender our all to follow Jesus? If we've really seen him, we can do no less. Let's stand.